0: Hello dreamers and welcome back to the show. This is the next installment of our longer than I thought it would be series where we've been taking a close look at the rise and fall of Theranos and its founder and former CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a couple of things about this podcast. This is an independent show that depends in large part on you listening. We always want to grow our audience. And there are several ways that you can help. You can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a preferably nice rating and a review. It helps give the show more visibility and enables new listeners to discover us. You can recommend the show on social media and in true crime fan groups. Give California Dreaming a little bit of love whenever you see somebody posting about how they've run out of things to listen to. You can also follow the show on Facebook. Twitter and on Instagram, and if for some reason, you find yourself needing more episodes of Kilo California Dreaming to listen to, you can become a subscriber on Patreon. starting at one dollar a month, you can gain access to a whole bunch of episodes you won't hear anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't your thing, but you'd still like to pitch in. You can do so through PayPal using our email address CaliforniaPod at gmail.com I have some thank yous for those of you who have either joined Patreon raised your pledge or went annual or sent some love via PayPal Ruthie M Shauna G Josie C Lori O Raleigh B Diane C Maria W Monique D Ellen D Kelly G Carol C, Christina S, Toya O, Anna H, Chris P, Donna B, Amanda, Tammy K, Harini S, and Amy D. I've also ordered a new batch of giveaways for patrons. I know that I am behind on mailing out thank you cards, but I'm getting to it. I ordered a whole bunch of new perks, including more stickers, buttons. I do have a very exclusive keychain with Fred's little fugly squished up potato face on it for those who subscribe at the $20 and above tiers. So if you're subscribed and you haven't gotten a thank you card from me yet, I am not finished mailing them out. I'm a little bit behind, but I'm getting to it. All right, that's enough blabbing about my needs. Let's get going on your needs. And if your needs include some blue suede Gucci loafers, please go punch yourself in the face and get the heck out of (laughs) here. The sources of this episode will include the book by Wall Street journalist John Carreyrou called Bad Blood, as well as several online articles and documents about this case. Everything will be appropriately cited in the show and in the show notes as needed. All right, let's get back to this train wreck that we've been covering, better known as Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Okay, let's start off with a recap of the last episode. I think it's a good idea, just in case you're like me and you forget everything the moment the next podcast episode in your queue starts playing. So last time, things got real. In the timeline, we were hovering around 2013, and it was certainly a pivotal year for Theranos. The pressure was on for either the mini lab or the Edison to hit the commercial market by making their long-awaited Walgreens partnership launch. I described how intense things got within the confines of Theranos, and even though all this time Elizabeth Holmes has been tough as nails and has had nerves of steel, even she was worried. She knew her blood testing device was far from being ready. She moved forward anyway, but, not without a super shady plan to continue to try and fool just about everybody and she kind of did for a while they were going to collect samples of blood at the actual walgreens wellness centers but instead of those tests being run in-house with theranos devices the plan was to have those blood draws to be actually venipuncture instead of finger prick when they knew that they would need much more volumes of blood to fulfill whatever order they had from the patient's doctors. Then those blood samples would be transported to the lab inside Theranos headquarters where it would be tested on the third party devices that had been modified by Daniel Young. We made our way through the launch of Theranos devices into Walgreens, which occurred in September of 2013. And that coincided with a glowing article in the Wall Street Journal that was basically introducing the world to Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, and the latest biotech company that was poised to change the world. And with that, Elizabeth had all the momentum and validation that she was going to need to bring in brand new investors while she topped off her board of directors with a who's who of luminaries in the world of politics and the United States military. Theranos had become one of the newest and biggest unicorns in the tech industry, and Elizabeth had become the Silicon Valley's newest darling, who was on her way to becoming the youngest self-made billionaire ever. But there was no amount of money, or no big-name board members, That could stop what was happening just beneath the surface, behind the scenes, within the walls of Theranos. It was a house of cards built on a foundation of lies, run by a manipulative smooth operator, Miss Elizabeth Holmes, and a despotic blue suede Gucci loafer-clad man-child named Sunny Belwani, whose trial just so happened to have started just in the last week or so. All right, so let's pick it up from where we left off. And I have been waiting to get to this part of the case because it is the very, very beginnings of the takedown. If I am remembering correctly, last fall when the story of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes had become front page news again because of her off delayed trial that had finally begun. One of the first things I remember was her giving this impassioned speech that she had delivered to an audience of Theranos employees in the cafeteria. This was still in the fall of 2013, leading up to the Walgreens ribbon cutting and the start of the newest and by far the biggest round of fundraising for Theranos to date. This was the speech to announce that they were finally going live with their blood testing systems in the brand new Walgreens Wellness Centers. She talked about having spent the last decade working towards developing the technology that would enable us to live in a world where we would never have to say goodbye to somebody that we love too soon. How her uncle had died at a relatively young age after a battle with cancer. If he had only known sooner, he would have been able to undergo the treatment before the cancer reached its deadly late stages and how Theranos's blood testing technology would have been able to provide him with the early warning signs of the onset of cancer. This was a very exciting time for Theranos as the Walgreens deal had actually become a reality, finally making it the first big win for this company, for Theranos. Albeit, it's a win steeped in fraud and deceit and lies, but it was exactly what Theranos needed in order to keep itself from crashing and burning. As always, Elizabeth's audience was captivated, and among the crowd was one brand new face, a young man named Tyler Schultz. He was 21 years old and he had just started working full-time at Theranos one week earlier. I could not find Tyler's exact date of birth. All I could find was that he was born in 1992. So I just listed the age that he was turning in whatever year that we're talking about. So Tyler had actually met Elizabeth the first time back in 2011. At the time, he was attending Stanford, majoring in mechanical engineering. He had stopped by his grandpa's house, which was located very close to the college campus. And his grandpa, of course, is former Secretary of State George Schultz. At the age of 90, he had become a member of Theranos' board of directors that same year, 2011, and he would remain on the board for the next four years. When Tyler met Elizabeth at his grandpa's, he learned about her work at Theranos and what her vision was, painless blood testing, using a finger prick of blood for a fraction of the cost of traditional blood testing. We already know how effective Elizabeth was in winning over wealthy older men. So you can imagine how captivated an intelligent, ambitious young man like Tyler could become. He went on to become an intern at Theranos during the summer of 2011. And when he went back to school that fall, he switched majors to biology. After graduating in the spring of 2013 and spending the summer vacationing in Europe, He came back and applied for and was offered a job at Theranos. Since Tyler had graduated from Stanford, we can assume that Sonny and Elizabeth would have initially frowned on that. You know, these college graduate types tend to have attributes like being knowledgeable and that can lead to them trying to work with like these high standards and that integrity stuff. Because, you know, having knowledge means knowing the truth. And that's just not what Elizabeth and Sonny look for in a potential candidate for a job at Theranos. But since he was the grandson of Elizabeth's bestest and most favorite old rich white guy, Secretary Schultz, she decided to make an exception and hire Tyler. And he was really excited about being a part of a company that his grandpa was not only a strong believer in, and a board member of, he was excited about Theranos' mission to change the world. A week before Elizabeth's dead uncle speech, Tyler got his first taste of the shit show that Theranos actually was. And I know I sound a little cynical about that, After all, it was Elizabeth's personal refrain that really moved people. This whole story about her uncle dying of cancer too soon and whatever. But you know, for me, it also gets cast under a shadow of doubt as to its veracity because of everything we know about Elizabeth and how she'd been quite economical with the truth. Anyway, Tyler's very first day at Theranos Happened to be the same day that chemist and head of the Immunoassay testing team, Anjali Ligari, had returned from her three week vacation in India only to find unauthorized employees were going in and out of the lab, that they were messing around with the Siemens Atvia blood testing machine, and that Elizabeth had decided to move forward with the Walgreens partnership using the Edison instead of the Mini Lab. All of this greatly troubled and jolly because she knew that neither machine was anywhere close to being ready to be used on actual patients. She had reached out to both Elizabeth and Daniel Young, the head of the biomathematics team, via email expressing her concerns, but it was ignored and she was later told by Elizabeth that she had made a promise to go live with her machines and she's sticking to it. So, Anjali decided to put in her resignation, along with one week's notice, but Sonny ended up telling her to leave immediately. Of course, Tyler didn't know the reasons for Anjali's sudden departure. All he heard was that things between her and Elizabeth had gone south, and with the way that Anjali's colleagues were reacting, it had turned into something that was kind of dramatic. Additionally, and Jolly's departure meant a change in Tyler's role at Theranos too, which he was not expecting. When he was hired, Tyler was to be a part of the protein engineering department, but three days into his first week on the job, Tyler was told that that department was going to be eliminated and everyone was going to be reassigned to the immunoassay team that had a shortage of people. It was quite a shakeup, but once Tyler heard Elizabeth's cafeteria speech, he had become much more confident about his new role at Theranos. About a month later, in October of 2013, Theranos hired another young, recent graduate from the University of California at Berkeley named Erica Chung. She had attended Berkeley from 2009 through 2013 And in those four years, she earned two bachelor's degrees, one in molecular and cell biology and another in linguistics. In her list of experiences on LinkedIn, she doesn't name Theranos specifically, but instead it says that she was a laboratory associate at a private biotech company from October of 2013 through April of 2014. Yeah. Erica was only with Theranos for seven months. So that's a pretty clear indicator that things are not going very well at all. John Carreyrou pointed out in his book that despite coming from very different backgrounds, Tyler, with his famous grandpa, was and is the product of the establishment, meaning that he comes from an elite, well-connected group of people. While well, Erica's parents were middle-class immigrants from Hong Kong, with her dad having started off at the entry-level position of package handler at UPS, working all the way up to the role of engineering manager. But Tyler and Erica, despite their differences, became really good friends fairly quickly as they were both working on the immunoassay team. And I cannot wait to never have to say the word immunoassay ever again once we are done with this series because it's really annoying and I can't ever seem to get it right. But anyway, you all know what I'm talking about. It was Tyler and Erica's job to experiment with the Edison in order to validate the accuracy of the blood tests that they were running. So... Where did they get all this blood to conduct their experimentations? Well, from Theranos' employees, their friends, and their family members. Everybody was paid $10 for every tube of blood that they were willing to donate, which meant there was a maximum of $50 per day that could be earned. Tyler and Erica were giving their blood because they were actually in a race to see who could be the first to earn $600. Any more than that, then Theranos would have to report the payouts to the IRS. There was even a weekend when Tyler and his roommates, and he had four of them, they all took a trip over to Theranos to try and earn beer and food money for a house party that they wanted to throw. In all, I believe they made about 250 bucks, and they had a really fun party. So Tyler had been an intern at Theranos in the summer of 2011, and while he was an intern, he was not allowed anywhere near the Edison or the mini lab. So he had no idea what it was like, how it was used. He didn't even know what it looked like on the outside, much less on the inside. So when it was time for him to be able to see the Edison, particularly on the inside for the first time, He was really excited. He completely and totally expected there to be this very elaborate and complex and high-tech microfluidic system that was running inside like a well-oiled machine. What a letdown it was for him. When a Theranos principal scientist named Ran Hu removed the black and white covering of the Edison while Tyler and his immediate supervisor, Aruna Ayer, looked on. Because Aruna had never seen the inside of the thing either. So when Rand took the cover off and did a test demonstration, both Tyler and Aruna were left scratching their heads. There was literally nothing impressive about what was inside this thing. There was no modern medical marvel inside. There was no state-of-the-art microfluidic system. All they saw was a robotic arm perched on a platform with a pipette attached to the end of it. In fact, Tyler was fairly certain that he had seen more impressive projects at his middle school science fair. Snapping out of her stunned silence, Aruna finally asked Ran if she thought the inside of the machine was pretty cool. And the answer Aruna got from Ran wasn't all that reassuring. As she told her, she's just going to have to decide that for herself. And when Ran put the cover back on the Edison, Aruna and Tyler tried using the touchscreen interface but that pretty much sucked too. Remember, the touchscreen had been developed by former Apple product designers, so it has a similar look and style as the iPhone, but it wasn't nearly as user friendly as the iPhone is. In fact, you basically had to repeatedly press as hard as you could onto the touchscreen in order to get the thing to respond. This wasn't a touchscreen, like, in any sense of the word. It was more of like a smash your finger as hard as you can screen For being as protective of their so-called trade secrets, Elizabeth apparently had not a problem stealing ideas from Steve Jobs. The black-and-white Edison machine definitely had an Apple product vibe about it. I guess it didn't really matter all that much considering it didn't work and it never would. But anyway, Tyler was feeling pretty discouraged based on what he was seeing. The Edison didn't look like a machine capable of everything that Elizabeth was claiming that it could do. But he knew that the next generation of Theranos' blood testing devices was in the works. And Elizabeth was calling it the 4S another thing that she lifted from Apple. In fact, 11 years ago, when Apple debuted the iPhone 4S in October of 2011, it was the fifth generation of the iPhone and it was the last Apple product to have been introduced to the world in Steve Jobs' lifetime. He died the day after the iPhone 4S made its press debut. But anyway, Tyler decided to try and not dwell too much on the Edison. Instead, he wanted to look forward to the development of the 4S. He just told himself that it was bound to be much more advanced than the Edison, which to him pretty much amounted to what a kid could build using an erector set. Another thing that caused Tyler to wonder and worry had to do with the repeated testings that he and Erica were instructed to carry out. They were to run tests over and over again on the same blood samples and track the variations in the results. They would then use the data from the test results to compute the Edison's coefficient of variation. According to investopedia.com, the coefficient of variation is a statistical measure of the dispersion of data points in a data series around the mean. It represents the ratio of the standard deviation to the mean and is usually expressed in a percentage. So what I imagine that, you remember when I talked a couple episodes back about this little graph that Sunny and Elizabeth had doctored up and it had this straight line with a cluster of dots all around it. Whether your dots were above or below the line, wasn't as important as how close they were to the line. And when doing the kind of testing that Tyler and Erica were conducting, in order for their results to be considered accurate, the coefficient of variation had to be less than 10%, which means that any of those dots that fell outside of the 10% were considered to be way too far off. Tyler came to find that If the data that they were coming up with weren't scoring a coefficient of variation that was low enough to be considered precise, those results, the ones that would land far away from the mean, those would be disposed of. And they would just keep running tests until they got the results that they wanted. The idea was, is if you run a test enough times you will eventually achieve the results that you want. An example that I remember hearing Tyler giving in one podcast that I listened to is that if you wanted to flip a coin and the result that you desired is to get that coin to land on heads 10 times in a row, if you flip that coin long enough, there will eventually be a time when you achieve that result. And once you do, you can go ahead and disregard all the other coin flips that did not yield the results that you wanted. Whenever there were test results that deviated way off the charts, those would be classified as outliers and they would not be included in the data collection. Erica did inquire with the senior scientists as to what they consider to be an outlier, but nobody could or would be willing to define that for her. Both she and Tyler, they were new to the company. They didn't have nearly as much experience in scientific research as some of the others at Theranos, but they knew enough to know that you just can't be picking and choosing the results that you like and disregard the ones that throw off your data and give you an undesirable coefficient of variation. This is faulty and misleading science. And it wasn't okay with either Tyler or Erica. And they came to find that their higher-ups weren't too keen on it either, including their own supervisor, Aruna Iyer, and another very well-respected scientist named Michael Humbert. And there was one specific validation run that Tyler worked on that involved testing blood for syphilis. Well, there are tests for certain things that provide you a measure or a number, such as cholesterol or blood sugar, right? When you test your blood and you're given a number, you can tell by the numerical results if you have high cholesterol or high blood sugar. The test for syphilis isn't detected numerically or measured numerically. It's either a yes or a no. And the accuracy of this test depends on how often the sample that has the syphilis actually tests positive. It's referred to as sensitivity. Tyler, along with several other scientists, spent many days running syphilis tests on 247 blood samples on the Edison. And they knew that 66 of those blood samples were positive for syphilis. During the first round of testing, the Edison only detected 65% of the positive blood samples. On the second round, they improved to 80%. But when Theranos published their validation report, it stated that the Edison had a 95% sensitivity for the syphilis test. Tyler and Erica knew that Theranos was reporting misleading results for this and several of their other tests. Another example was using the Edison to test for vitamin D levels. When they ran the vitamin D test on blood using one of the third-party machines, they were getting results that reflected normal vitamin D concentrations, which is around 20 nanograms per milliliter. And by the way, vitamin D deficiency leads to a loss of bone density and too much leads to vitamin D toxicity, which can cause a patient to become very sick because of a high buildup of calcium in the blood. Symptoms include loss of appetite, nausea, and vomiting, followed by weakness, nervousness, and high blood pressure. Like I said, healthy patients have about 20 nanograms of vitamin D per milliliter, and that was the result that they were getting from the third-party testing devices. But when they ran the blood through the Edison and tested the same exact samples for vitamin D, the results that they were getting were only around 10 nanograms per milliliter, meaning that that person would have been erroneously diagnosed with a vitamin D deficiency. In spite of the flawed results, the Edison's vitamin D testing was cleared for takeoff. It was going live to run tests on actual patients. Also cleared were the Edison's thyroid test and the prostate cancer marker tests. It was very, very troubling for both Tyler and Erica. One month after she was hired, Erica was transferred from working with the immunoassay team to the laboratory. Remember, Theranos has two labs. One they call Jurassic Park, where they kept the supposedly soon-to-be prehistoric third-party blood testing machines that actually did work when used properly. And the second, hidden, more secretive lab they called Normandy. This was a lab where the Theranos devices were located at that Sunny and Elizabeth claimed were going to shake up the world of blood testing. Maybe, sort of. Ah, we know how this story plays out. They called it Normandy, probably just to try to psych themselves out like they were actually going to do this, like they were going to take the world by storm like D-Day. Talk about eating your words, right? Anyway, Erica was down working in the Normandy lab running tests on the Edison when she received an order from Walgreens for a patient's blood to be tested for their vitamin D concentrations. And this was around Thanksgiving time. So she followed the procedure by running a control test first before running the patient's actual blood. Quality control checks are an essential part of every laboratory to ensure that the results that they get are accurate. According to Bad Blood, this is how quality control checks are run. The lab technician uses a sample of preserved blood plasma that is known to have a certain level of an analyte in it. They are to run the test to see if they get a result that matches what the known levels are. If they match, then the machine passes the quality control test. If the result is two or more standard deviations higher or lower than the known sample value, then the quality control test is considered a fail. Erica ran a quality control test on the Edison and it failed. She ran a second test and it failed again. Because this was over the Thanksgiving holiday, all of the senior lab technicians were off or on vacation So, she was kind of stuck as to what to do. Theranos had an emergency email protocol set up just for problems like this. So, she sent out an email asking for help. Three people, Sam Ankle, Suraj Saxena, and Daniel Young, all replied to her emergency email with an assortment of suggestions but Erica was still unable to get an acceptable quality control test. A little while later, when nothing that Erica was trying was working, a member of Theranos' research and development team named Ewan Do went down to the Normandy lab to check on the quality control test results. Sunny and Daniel Young had come up with their very own protocol when it came to keeping track of the results that they got from the blood test using Edison. I'll explain that to you in a minute, but let's review Daniel Young's background. Remember, Daniel had been with Theranos for more than nine years, according to his LinkedIn profile. From February of 2009 through March of 2012, he was the Senior Director of Theranos Systems and Computational Biosciences, otherwise known as a math nerd. Then from March of 2012 through February of 2018, he was the company's vice president, Varanosa's number three person behind Sonny and Elizabeth. Daniel had graduated from MIT with a PhD in engineering, and he specializes in data sciences, machine learning, artificial intelligence, biology, dynamic modeling of biological systems, clinical decision-making, symptom-to-condition, artificial intelligence applications, clinical study design and simulation, neural networks, synaptic plasticity, bioinformatics, regulatory submissions, and complex systems. So, as I stated, math nerd. At the time that he left Theranos, He had founded his own consulting firm, which appears to be what a lot of former Theranos employees have gone on to do. With Daniel's expertise and background, he was able to come up with a way to generate blood test results with the data that the very, very flawed Edison was coming up with. John Carreyrou called it unorthodox. I would call it junk science. And it's one of several reasons why Daniel Young Had been at risk of possibly facing prosecution along with Sonny and Elizabeth. He's the PhD. He knows better. But he came up with this nonsensical quality control protocol that he convinced himself was good enough, but at the same time would please Sonny because he's a dummy that doesn't know anything about anything and he didn't care what it took to fit the square peg into the round hole as long as the inconvenient truth could be hidden out of sight and out of mind. This is what they were doing in order to achieve the best results possible. They were taking the small blood samples taken by way of finger prick, and they were diluting it to make more volume out of the small samples. And then they were divvying it up into three equal parts. And then those three parts were put through tests on three separate Edisons, and inside those three Edisons, two pipettes in each machine would pick up and test two separate tests. So in total, there would be six diluted samples that would be tested, and they would get the result by using the median of those six results. And the median would be the two numbers in the middle. So keeping it simple for us that don't know much about anything, If the six results came out to be one, two, three, four, five, and six, they would take the two numbers in the middle and then divide them by two, and that would be the official result of the blood test. And in the case of my sample, that would be 3.5, just right down the middle. So Erica went ahead and used this testing protocol to run two blood samples through the test for quality control. She used the three devices and came up with a total of 12 results. But when Yuan Doe took a look at the 12 results, she removed two of the results, telling Erica that they were outliers, and then she took the median of the remaining 10 results and came up with an acceptable quality control result. Then Ewan ran the test on the sample that Erica had received from Walgreens and came up with the result to be sent back to the patient. This protocol that Sonny and Daniel cooked up is not the way that these things are supposed to be handled, nor is it the way that they are supposed to come up with data. This was essentially the cover-up of a failed quality control test. At a normal company in a normal lab, if there were two supposed outliers, that device that produced those test results would have been shut down and a service technician would need to come and recalibrate it. In addition to that, Yuan and was not even supposed to be having anything to do with the laboratory. She wasn't authorized to be in there and she didn't have the clinical lab services certification. She had no business processing blood samples. This whole entire incident over Thanksgiving deeply troubled Erica and she had only been at Theranos for one month. A week later. An inspector from the state's Department of Health Lab Services unit came in and paid a visit to Theranos' Jurassic Park lab, the one with the third-party blood testing machines. Remember, this is a lab that has the CLIA, or the Clinical Lab Improvement Amendment Certification. The other lab, Normandy, has Theranos devices in it, and we all know that those are certified J-U-N-K. That spells junk. Adam Rosendorf is the one who has to deal with the inspector because he's the lab director and it's his name that's on that CLIA certification. The reason for the visit from the inspector is because the CLIA certification has to be renewed every two years and that triggers a new lab inspection. Sonny went around the building and told everybody to stay out of the Normandy lab, do not even think about going in or out while the inspection was going on in the Jurassic lab. There were a set of stairs hidden behind a locked door that required a key card to get in that led down to the Normandy lab, and Sunny wanted to make sure that that inspector would not be alerted to the fact that they had a second secret lab with junk machines in it that would barely even pass as paperweights, much less pass a CLIA certification. Sonny didn't even want the inspector to see that there was a set of stairs behind that door, nor did he want her to ask what was behind it, as he would be required to answer and possibly even have to show her. And that could quite possibly ruin their whole shady scheme. As Adam Rosendorf was talking to the inspector, and while she pointed out there were some issues that needed to be addressed, he was really nervous as He had promised that he would make all of those necessary corrections as soon as possible, but he knew that there was so much more going on beneath the surface. But after a few hours, the inspector left, never realizing that she completely overlooked the lab that contained Theranos' own proprietary blood testing devices. Adam was finally able to relax and breathe once she was gone but he really felt as though he should not be in this position where he's made to feel so anxious when dealing with lab inspections. If things were on the level, if everything was on the up and up, he would have no reason to feel this way. He was so glad that the inspector was gone, but he was also upset because of the position that he was being put in, being made to be deceitful. He was lying to state regulators, and he felt very, very uncomfortable about that. Meanwhile, Theranos had been running dozens of tests for patients visiting their wellness centers inside the Palo Alto Walgreens, but they were doing venipuncture blood draws, taking tubes of blood instead of the little drip drops of blood that was promised. There were only four tests that were being run by Theranos using Fingerprick samples. I don't know why people weren't saying anything about it. Why they were just going along with the large blood samples being taken from their arms, considering that Theranos, for close to a decade, had built their whole entire business on that one key element. Hundreds of tests on a single drop of blood. Likening traditional blood draws to vampirism. I tried to put myself in the patient's shoes, you know, if I had walked into a Walgreens because my doctor had ordered some blood tests. And I wondered, would I really object or protest if the phlebotomist informed me that they were going to need to take a sample from my vein instead of my finger? Or if I'd just sit there quietly and assume that they know better than I do, so who am I to question? I probably wouldn't say anything, and that was likely what Theranos was banking on. Now, I don't know for sure, but I guess we can kind of surmise that perhaps some of the tests that Theranos was running were at times accurate, so long as they were using traditional amounts of blood on the third-party analyzers. Which is okay, but it's hardly groundbreaking, it's hardly innovative, or worth hundreds of millions of dollars, since it's technology that has been around for decades, and it doesn't belong to Theranos, but they're passing it off as if it were their own unique technology. Deep down, they knew that they needed to start taking finger stick blood draws. So just after the CLIA certification inspection had taken place, Sunny said that from that point forward, every blood sample taken at Walgreens was to be a finger stick only they were not going to do any more venous draws. This meant that the Advia machines that Daniel Young and Sam Gong had made all of those rudimentary modifications to were going to be used on all the customers who were having their blood tests run through Walgreens and Theranos, except for perhaps the four that were sort of being run on the Edison. And this would bring a whole new set of problems for Elizabeth and Sonny and Theranos. But anyway, Sonny and Elizabeth were ready for the next set of victims that they were going to lure into Theranos' wellness centers, Arizonans. The reasons they decided that they wanted to go to Arizona next, specifically Phoenix, is because statistics showed that a large population of those residing in Phoenix did not have medical insurance and would be interested in Theranos' relatively low prices for blood tests. So after they got the Palo Alto Wellness Center up and running, they next opened two more in two Phoenix Walgreens. And there were plans for dozens and dozens more to open in and around the Phoenix, Scottsdale, and Mesa metropolitan area. Elizabeth wanted to set up a Theranos laboratory in Phoenix eventually, but for the time being, the blood samples were being taken from patients in Arizona and being transported via FedEx to the Palo Alto lab. But there was a problem. It's called the weather. It is so hot all the time in Phoenix, even in the coldest months the average high temperature is like 65 degrees Fahrenheit or about 18 degrees Celsius. While in the summer, the average temperature in the hottest months is about 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius with the hottest day ever recorded being 122 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 degrees Celsius. On average, it's even hotter there than it is here in Southern Nevada where I pretty much die of heat. Every summer since I've been here and I'm expecting it to come very soon because it's already April and it's about to get hot as hell. Well, actually, it's March 31st as I'm recording it. So tomorrow it's going to be April, but there's no such thing as like spring and fall here in Nevada. And I mean, I guess you get used to it, but it's not fun. The summers are not fun. Anyway, that said, the finger stick blood draws being taken at the Phoenix Wellness Centers, while the nanotainers that the blood was being kept in were inside the coolers, those coolers were left to sit out in the heat at the airport on the tarmac while waiting to be loaded onto the airplanes to be transported to California. And because of that heat, the blood would clot inside the nanotainers. Also, remember back when I talked about there being high potassium levels found in many of the finger stick blood draws? And that was a result of hemolysis. I think that's how it's pronounced, hemolysis. It's the bursting of the red blood cells that resulted in the release of added potassium into the blood because of the way that the finger is often squeezed in order to milk blood out of it, which would cause the bursting of the blood cells. Well, it was happening pretty often. So Adam Rosendorf was receiving samples that he could see due to the blood's pinkish color, even before he tested it, that the blood was already in hemolysis. In fact, some of the blood tests that were run showed such high levels of potassium that the patient that the blood was taken from would have had to have been dead in order for them to have such a high reading. So they were getting results that weren't even possible to be found in an actually alive patient. So Adam let the technician know that if they ran potassium tests, if the results that they were getting were higher than a certain level, that they were not to release those results to the patient. From there, Adam begged and pleaded with Elizabeth to temporarily pull the potassium test off the menu, but Elizabeth flat out refused. She decided to have Daniel Young try to work on fixing the problem. Towards the beginning of 2014, Tyler was moved to a different department once again. He went from the immunoassay team to the production team, which sent him down into the secret Normandy lab. The move also meant that he would be back working in close proximity to Erica and her team who were down there in that lab running blood samples from patients on both the Edison machines and the modified Advia machines. They were in different departments, but Tyler could eavesdrop on their conversations. And this is when he found out about the failed quality control tests that we just finished talking about a few minutes ago. Not only that, Tyler also found out that Sonny was ordering the lab techs to disregard the failed quality control test results and move on to testing patient samples regardless of those failures. It was about this time that Tyler began thinking that he needed to either do something or say something. This just wasn't sitting well with him. So as he contemplated what his next steps were going to be, Tyler's grandpa called him up. Elizabeth was about to turn 30 that February of 2014. February 3rd, to be exact. Secretary Schultz wanted to host a birthday party for her, and he wanted Tyler an accomplished guitarist to play some of his original music for her. Playing guitar for Elizabeth was the cringiest of cringe things that Tyler could imagine himself having to do. And he told Grandpa, Sorry, no can do. He said he had to work. His shift was from 3 p.m. to 1 a.m. There's just no way. Well, Grandpa probably doesn't get told no very often when he wants something. So he insisted that Tyler come. He's already made the arrangements. He was going to be seated right next to the birthday girl and their good friend elizabeth's mentor channing robertson grandpa insisted that tyler show up for the celebration he was certain that elizabeth would not mind him taking an evening off of work and on top of that elizabeth wanted tyler to be there so basically tyler had no choice he had to go to this birthday party. At the party that was being held at Grandpa's house, which was located near the Stanford campus, Tyler's step-grandmother, Grandpa's second wife, she was the one kind of really hosting the party. Also there were Noel, Chris, and Christian, Elizabeth's mom, dad, and brother, and William Perry, a member of Theranos's board of directors, if you recall, He had been the Secretary of Defense under President Clinton. The whole thing sounds so uncomfortable, and I would have just hated to have been in Tyler's position, and it was only going to get worse. Grandpa insisted that Tyler play a song that he had written. Not Grandpa, but Tyler had written. It was something that he had just thrown together really fast i don't know if it was for the occasion or not but it kind of sounded like it was like perhaps grandpa said maybe you can write an original for elizabeth and the song was so cringe and the lyrics even worse as he had integrated theranos's motto one drop changes everything into this song he was mortified to have to play it once but he had to do an encore when Henry Kissinger had the nerve to show up all late. And then the cringe escalated even more. This is what John Kerry wrote in his book about the whole scene. To his horror, Tyler had to play it again a little while later because Henry Kissinger arrived late and everybody thought that he should hear it, too. And when Tyler finished, Kissinger, who like George Schultz was in his early 90s, recited a limerick that he had written for the birthday girl. The scene had a surreal quality to it. They were all sitting in a circle in the Schultz's living room, and Elizabeth was in the middle, reveling in the attention. It was as though she were the queen and they were her court kissing her ring. As awkward as the evening was, it made Tyler feel like he was on friendly enough terms with Elizabeth to speak to her candidly about his concerns. Shortly after the party, he sent her an email asking if they could meet. Now, dreamers, I do think it's important to understand and remember that under any other circumstances with any other Theranos employee, it is highly unlikely that Elizabeth would have given that email from Tyler any of her time. She would have turned it over to Sonny and he would have either banished Tyler himself or assigned him to one of the Therabros to shut him and his concerns down quickly. The Theranos machine would squash it and make sure that Tyler is completely afraid and intimidated straight into silence. But Tyler is not the average employee. He is the grandson of Elizabeth's most important investor and board member, hands down. It is why Secretary Schultz had such a prominent role in this story. Elizabeth catered to him more than anybody because he was the one with all the connections to every other powerful investor and member of the board. George Schultz's presence legitimized Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. So when Elizabeth received Tyler's email, she asked him to come see her at her office. They didn't talk for very long, but Tyler was able to share some of the things that were bothering him. And among him were the claims that Theranos was making about the accuracy of their tests, including how they were making the claim that the coefficient of variation was below 10%, which is considered to be plenty accurate. He told her that he knew for a fact that the coefficient of variation was much higher than they were reporting, rendering the tests invalid. Elizabeth acted surprised, but we know that she has Sunny and his flunky yes-men working around the high variations in their own creative yet underhanded ways, but she feigned ignorance. She stated that she did not believe Theranos did anything of the sort. They do not fudge with the numbers, but Tyler knew that they were. He'd heard Erica and her team discussing it in the time that he'd been moved down into the Normandy lab as a part of the production team. So as she continued to pretend to be stunned at what Tyler was suggesting, she wanted him to sit down and take a look at Theranos' website. It's the place where they made all of their claims public. She navigated to a page entitled Our Technology, and the page did in fact claim that they had a coefficient of variation under 10%. However, in the fine print, it said that the coefficient of variation applied only to Theranos' vitamin D tests. Well played, Elizabeth. Well played. But Tyler made a point to remember to fact check that anyway. So now he's at a point where Tyler isn't even trusting the fine print. The next point he brought up was the fact that when he ran his own validation tests, his coefficient of variation results were always higher, sometimes much higher than what Theranos was publishing in their validation reports. What did all of this mean? Well, it meant that Theranos was making misleading claims about their blood test results reporting that they were more accurate than they truly were. But Elizabeth, this Elizabeth that Tyler is speaking to is very reminiscent of the Elizabeth that we've seen speaking at her 2017 deposition, where she pretended to not know. She feigned ignorance. She insisted hundreds of times that she didn't remember not to her knowledge, she can't recall, she doesn't remember saying that. That's the Elizabeth interacting here with Tyler, doing what she can do to try and reassure the grandson of her most favorite board member and her most important board member, Secretary Schultz. Her reply to the allegation that the precision of Theranos' tests were inaccurate in that their reports reflected a smaller coefficient of variation than what their actual tests were really saying. She said that doesn't sound right. And from there, she told Tyler that perhaps he should speak to Daniel Young, that maybe he would be able to better explain things, seeing as he has the MIT PhD and Sonny and Elizabeth have little more than a pretty face and a fugly face, respectively. So with Elizabeth taking the time to go through this stuff with Tyler, defending Theranos's accuracy and testing, it's very different than the way that she normally handles employees who raise concerns or question their practices. We've seen her in action in the past. She either ignores any concerns raised by employees or she sends them to Sunny to in turn make them disappear or it's a combination of the both. For the most part, anyone who came to Elizabeth or Sonny the way that Tyler did, their days were pretty much numbered. But Elizabeth knew that she couldn't send Sonny in to verbally eviscerate or fire Tyler because it would get back to his grandpa and she did not want to upset him. That was the last thing that she wanted to do. Over time, as Tyler would continue to be unconvinced that the things at Theranos were on the level, Elizabeth would work on kicking up the charm, generosity, and manipulation of Secretary Schultz in order to keep him in her favor. And she would come so close to driving a deep, irrevocable wedge between grandpa and grandson, while nearly bankrupting his parents in the fight against the machine that is the Theranos Corporation. So Tyler did speak to Daniel a couple of times in the following weeks, but he found Daniel to be very awkward and frustrating to talk to. He's got this big old forehead and this thinning hairline, which gave the impression that this guy is a brainiac math genius, along with some wiry glasses that just topped off this whole look daniel also had the flattest of flat affects that would not betray what this guy was ever really thinking or feeling personally i think daniel young completed the leadership trifecta elizabeth was the face of the company Sonny was the muscle and dreamers don't get me wrong here i mean that absolutely and totally in a figurative sense in that He happened to wander his way into this position of COO by virtue of having a lot of money. He had a hold on Elizabeth somehow, and he basically had nothing better to do. And then I feel like Daniel Young, he was the brains of the operation. Without him, Elizabeth and Sonny would not have been able to dance around and cover up all of Theranos's failures. And frankly, He's lucky that he wasn't charged along with Miss Thing and Mr. Not-So-Much. Anyway, Daniel Young told Tyler that the way that he was figuring the coefficient of variation was wrong by using all of the six values that the Edison was producing when they took the quality control samples, splitting them apart, testing them twice through three different Edisons. He was supposed to only go by the median value of the results, which, when they do run patient blood tests, that is the final result that would be reported back to them. It was the only value that mattered. While this may have been a perfectly acceptable way of getting results under normal circumstances, Tyler knew that there was one fundamental problem with the Edison. The pipette tips that took the blood sample from the cartridge inside the device were so flawed and imprecise that he knew that they wouldn't even work with the values. The pipettes needed to be precisely calibrated to begin with in order for anything that Daniel Young was saying to work under his theory, because if they were calibrated and working properly, each result would have been relevant to the final results. The next thing Tyler brought up was the exaggeration Theranos was claiming in regards to the syphilis test sensitivity. Daniel came up with another excuse. He told Tyler that some of the results that they were getting from the Edison fell into what Daniel described as the equivocal zone. And if you aren't paying close enough attention, you might miss the fact that that essentially equates to a vague or ambiguous zone. When the Edison spit out vague results, those are not included in the syphilis sensitivity computations. Tyler was still calling bullshit in his mind as he was sitting there listening to Daniel Young try to explain all of this away. Because the fact was, they really had no real definition of this so-called equivocal zone. The nature of it, to begin with, is rooted in ambiguity So really what's going on here is any undesired test result could technically fall into this zone. And Tyler knew for a fact that Theranos was tossing out more unwanted results that they decided were equivocal than they were actually keeping that had been identified as testing positive for syphilis. So the implication here is that if this was a real live testing of a patient, who may be getting tested because he or she has come into contact with someone infected with syphilis, that patient might very well be told that they did test positive when they were actually negative or vice versa. Either way, it's bad. Tyler finally put it to Daniel. Does he believe it when Theranos claims that they have developed the most accurate tests for syphilis available? Diana replied that Theranos had never made such a claim. Tyler was really perturbed by Daniel's runaround responses. So he went to his computer and he looked up the Wall Street Journal article that had been written about Theranos. Elizabeth had been interviewed for it and the article clearly said that Theranos tests were more accurate than traditional testing methods and it referred to Theranos's technological breakthroughs as advancements in science. When Tyler and Daniel spoke next, Daniel said that those statements were way too generalized. But when you look at it, the claim wasn't a direct quote from Elizabeth, and it could have very well been something that the writer of the article inferred and added into it. And Tyler was like, yeah, no. The journalist who wrote that article didn't just pull that claim out of thin air. It had to have been something that he was told directly by Elizabeth because it sounds exactly like something that would come from Elizabeth's mouth. Daniel finally, finally let the most minuscule of smiles come across his boring face. And in that moment, if you blinked, you would have missed it. He told Tyler something to the effect that when Elizabeth was being interviewed, sometimes she gets a little loosey-goosey with the truth. And by the way, I'm paraphrasing, because I don't think the MIT PhD is going to say loosey-goosey. One other issue that Tyler had was a bit of information that he had gotten from Erica. So every four months or so, all laboratories must be subjected to proficiency testing. And the purpose of the labs going through these proficiency testings three times a year is to weed out labs that are coming up with inaccurate test results. The laboratories are sent samples of blood plasma, and those labs are required to test those samples for various specific sets of analytes. If the lab is able to accurately identify what analytes are in the plasma samples, then they pass. Theranos did not have any problems passing the test since the lab became certified, which by 2014 had been more than two years. But they weren't testing the plasma samples on Theranos devices. They were using the commercial analyzers that they had purchased from third-party companies. Since Theranos had switched to using the Edison in order to run tests from patients whose blood was being collected at Walgreens, Lab director Adam Rosendorf was interested in seeing how well the Edison would do when subjected to the proficiency tests. And this would be for the first time. Remember, up to that point, they had passed every proficiency test using third-party machines. So Adam, along with his new co-director, Mark Pandori, divided up the plasma samples that they were sent and had some of the lab techs run tests on the Edisons, and others ran tests on the third-party devices that they had in the lab. And when the tests were finished, the Edison results were way different than the ones from the third-party machines. The test results from the Edison that were the most off were the ones for the test for vitamin D. So... Little mister Snitfit Sonny caught wind of the dual testings that the lab was conducting, and he lost his little man temper. With his bossy pants hiked up to his chest hairs, he stomped his little Gucci's all the way up to the lab and threw a big old hissy fit. All this testing for accuracy needed to come to a complete halt immediately, and the only results that were going to be sent back to the accreditation entity would be the results that they got off the real blood testing devices. You know, the ones manufactured by Siemens or DiaSorin and such. Those Edison results, those needed to disappear or else. Everybody knew that this was really, really super wrong. Everyone in the lab knew that they should have run the tests on the Edison and submitted those results for the proficiency testing. Tyler even went to double check the CLIA rulebook just to be certain. And sure enough, When they run proficiency tests using the plasma samples, those tests must be run on the same exact machines that they were using to test patient blood samples. The same machines in the same manner using the same techniques. The Edison at the time was being used to run only four tests. Vitamin D, the test for prostate antigens, and a couple of thyroid hormone tests. They would have been required to run those tests on the Edison, but they did not. And Tyler knew that that was not only wrong, it was illegal. When Tyler spoke to Daniel Young again about running the proficiency tests on the third-party blood analyzers, he replied with what John Carreyrou described as torturous logic. Quote, He said laboratory proficiency testing results were assessed by comparing them to its peers' results, which wasn't possible in Theranos' case because its technology was so unique that it had no peer group. As a result, the only way to do an apples-to-apples comparison was by using the same conventional methods as other laboratories. Then Daniel went on to say that these proficiency tests were so complex that Tyler needed to just settle down and relax. They weren't doing anything untoward. They weren't doing anything illegal. Daniel was probably so used to being able to dumb things down for Sonny and Elizabeth to a point that it didn't matter how wrong or illogical it sounded. They were willing to buy what Daniel was saying because it was what they wanted to hear young, up-and-coming scientists like Tyler and Erica, they're not going to be persuaded by this deceit and flimflammery. Tyler made the decision to try and figure out what was going on with Theranos and if the way that the proficiency testings were being run were in fact improper. And he wanted to get the opinion from someone who would know best And didn't necessarily have the best interest of Theranos in mind, but instead a third neutral party. He had tried for weeks, first reaching out to Elizabeth, at which point he was deferred to Daniel. And as he continued asking questions, Tyler just got told things that didn't make sense, things that weren't true at all. And then he was basically told that Elizabeth tends to exaggerate and That's just the way it is. Daniel Young comes from the world of mathematics, and he may have been in a way, way far around the roundabout way, technically speaking, not necessarily wrong, but nobody knows because it's so convoluted. But Tyler knew in his heart and in his mind that everything that was going on was blatantly wrong. Sometime in March, I believe towards the end of March, over the weekend of the 29th and the 30th, I believe, Tyler reached out to the director of the clinical lab evaluation program at the Department of Health for the state of New York, and her name was Stephanie Schulman. The reason why he contacted this particular department is because they did conduct at least one of the proficiency tests that Theranos had taken. Tyler did not use his real name, but instead he created a new email account under the name Colin Ramirez. I don't know how Tyler picked that name, but out of curiosity, I looked to see who Colin Ramirez may have been and how many would show up in the top Google results. There is a Dr. Colin Ramirez who's a pediatrician in Athens, Georgia. Then there is a Chief Fire Officer Colin Ramirez with the Gibraltar Fire and Rescue Service in the British territory of Gibraltar, just south of Spain. And then there was a Colin Ramirez who played quarterback for Portland State University some 10 years ago. There's also a soccer player named Colin Ramirez, but he was also located in Gibraltar. So I don't know if he's one and the same with the fire chief. I couldn't tell. But anyway, I don't know if it was just a random name that Tyler picked or if he was inspired by one of these other Collins but he knew enough to know this early on that he needed to be very careful about what he said about Theranos and to whom he said it. He received a reply on Monday, March 31st, 2014, just after 9 a.m. Pacific time. Tyler exchanged a number of emails with Stephanie Shulman, and based on what he was telling her about the manner in which Theranos was running the proficiency test, She reached the conclusion that Theranos was cheating, and this amounted to a violation of both state and federal regulations. Then she told Tyler that he had a choice when it came to what his next course of action could or should be. He could either tell her the name of the lab that was in violation, or he could file an anonymous complaint with New York's dedicated lab investigative department. Tyler decided to go with the anonymous complaint. The next thing Tyler wanted to do was to speak to his grandpa face to face about what he had discovered regarding Theranos' lab practices. Tyler went to his grandpa's house, confident that what he had found out about Theranos and the way that they were running proficiency tests was essentially cheating and that he wasn't mistaken about what he had found. By this time. Secretary Schultz was 93 years old and I'm confident his mind was sharp and it was possible for him to understand and grasp what was going on and why Tyler was going to attempt to explain everything to him they sat down and talked and Tyler went over how important it is to be accurate and precise in testing blood He talked about the concepts of the quality of the tests, the proficiencies that they needed to pass three times a year. Tyler explained how Theranos was not living up to what it advertised itself to be. They weren't running hundreds of tests on a single droplet of blood. At best, they were running a maximum of four tests, and there was no indication that those results were even close to being consistently reliable. All the other tests that Theranos was running, they were doing those on these enormous machines that were accurate and precise, and they were passing those results off as if they were obtained from the Edison, and they weren't. They are being run on machines manufactured by other companies. Grandpa was listening to what Tyler was saying but it was clear to Tyler that it wasn't sinking in. By this time, Secretary Schultz had been tirelessly and incessantly groomed by Elizabeth for as many as three years by then. She had lavished him with hundreds of thousands of shares of Theranos stock and a salary of around $650,000 a year. I mean, George Schultz was... An Elizabeth Holmes super fan, through and through. And I'm not saying he was a man who allowed himself to be bamboozled by a woman with a pretty face, a sweet smile, a way with words, and millions and millions of dollars, because I do believe that he believed in Elizabeth, Theranos, and her vision. He had been on her board for a few years by then, but he wasn't the only one. There were plenty of others, just like him who bought what Elizabeth was selling. But when Tyler factored into the equation, you have this young, recent Stanford graduate who is was intelligent, ambitious, and aspiring scientist. He's just going to appreciate, understand that there are some things in this world that you can't simply dismiss, especially when it comes to health and medicine. Perhaps Steve Jobs could get up on a stage and tell the world that the iPhone's operating system is the fastest in the world. And the time it takes from when you power your phone on to when the iOS boots up and is ready to use only takes 20 seconds. But when you get your iPhone and you turn it on and you find out it actually takes 25 seconds, not everybody's going to notice, not everybody's going to care. And I mean, not that I think Apple would make a claim like that, But it's just an example. It's a first world problem that isn't going to cause anybody any real harm. The same cannot be said about what Theranos was attempting to do. Fudging numbers in medicine can mean the difference between going home and thinking that you have a clean bill of health or going to the emergency room thinking you're in the throes of a miscarriage. Tyler told Grandpa that He just could not in good conscience continue on like this and he wanted him to know because he was on the board of directors, but he's also his grandpa. He couldn't stay with a company that was blatantly cheating and lying and in doing so, putting people in harm's way. And Tyler told his grandpa that he was going to resign. But grandpa asked him to hang in there for a little bit because he trusted Elizabeth implicitly. And you know, Secretary Schultz is considered to be one of the greatest statesmen in American history. It's debatable, I know, but we're not talking about your average, everyday old guy who might be slipping a little bit as he's aged. He's still very well-respected, and it was not easy for Tyler, I'm sure, to confront him with what he found out. But Grandpa is sitting here asking Tyler to not give up on Elizabeth just yet. Talk to her let her explain things. So Tyler relented. He would try and talk to Elizabeth again, one more time, about his concerns. By the time Tyler was set to try and discuss things with Elizabeth, with everything that had been going on with Theranos and Walgreens, and all this good publicity that Theranos had received, her schedule was pretty full most of the time. So when he tried to make an appointment with her, she asked Tyler if he could put everything in an email so she could look it over when she found the time. So he did. He wrote to her about the things that he talked about with Daniel Young and how none of that really addressed the concerns that he had. He attached whatever documents with statistics and data that he had collected over the last several weeks. And according to Bad Blood, this is how he ended his email. I'm sorry if this email sounds attacking in any way. I do not intend it to be. I just feel a responsibility to you and tell you what I see so we can work towards solutions. I am invested in this company's long-term vision and I am worried that some of our current practices will prevent us from reaching our bigger goals. So dreamers, At this point, I get the impression that Tyler has no idea how in the know Elizabeth actually was when it comes to everything that Theranos was doing wrong. Either that or he is approaching her in a way where she won't be so defensive. It's hard to say what Tyler actually thinks of Elizabeth at this point, but he has seen her differently than most everybody else due to the fact that she had Cultivated such a tight relationship with his grandpa, and his grandpa's probably been singing Elizabeth's praises for a really long time by then. Tyler trusts grandpa. So, if he is convinced Elizabeth is the next Silicon Valley superstar, then Tyler could be under the impression that it's everybody else beneath her. That is breaking all of the rules and regulations and all of this is happening unbeknownst to Elizabeth. The way that he closed out his email leads me to believe that he does have faith in her and her vision for Theranos. What I find to be somewhat terrifying is the fact that Tyler had no idea what he was walking into. Basically, it's what you would call the lion's den. By this time... We know just how merciless, retaliatory, and malignant Elizabeth and Sonny truly are. I know that Tyler Schultz is a young man who was and is going to be okay. He comes from a privileged background, but at the same time, as we're talking about this, we're watching him in real time venturing into something very treacherous. And he doesn't seem to have any idea just how hard elizabeth and sunny work to not just silence but to also annihilate people just like him those people who simply won't just sit down shut up and do as they're told back when all of this was happening tyler really was just a kid right out of college and so excited to have this opportunity to change the world Maybe not on as big of a stage as Grandpa did, but in Tyler's own little way, he was off to a good start. At least he thought he was. And it's really difficult and painful to see at this point in the story, knowing what we know, that he's just walking right into it. Tyler had the wherewithal to know that he needed To get out after only five short months he could see that this was no place for him but he did have enough love and respect for grandpa to take his sage advice and give it at least one more try and all we can do as the listeners watching this all happen all we can do is sit here and be like don't do it tyler listen to your gut listen to your instinct Get out while you can. You wish you could just reach in there and just stop him and tell him, no, don't do it. Stop. Grandpa's wrong. But he's going to be okay. And he's got some life lessons that maybe he'll be able to pass on to his own grandkids when he's in his 90s. Because we know Tyler's going to have his own epic story to tell. That's for sure. I can't say with any certainty how Elizabeth reacted to Tyler's email. She's very disingenuous to those that she needs to hide every truth from. Tyler is one that she cannot just toss out on his ear. But based on the manner in which she has treated others who meddle just a little too much, I think we could be fairly certain that she is probably quite annoyed that Tyler keeps pestering her. He may not have the kinds of money or clout that Elizabeth has, especially the clout with his own grandfather, but he is an intelligent graduate of Stanford. And I think that Elizabeth knows deep down that there isn't anything that she's going to be able to say that's going to convince him that everything is all right and to just go along with the way that they do things. Tyler's grandpa was many, many, many things in this world. A captain in the Marines in World War II, a graduate of MIT with a PhD in economics, Dean of the University of Chicago's Business School, President Eisenhower's economic advisor, President Nixon's Secretary of Labor, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, Secretary of the Treasury, President Reagan's Secretary of State. He helped thaw out the Cold War with the Soviet Union. He was advisor to President Bush I. He served on the Global Commission on Drug Policy. He was Governor Schwarzenegger's Economic Recovery Council, a fellow of the Hoover Institution, the Institute for International Economics, an advocate for nuclear arms control, an advocate for the fight against climate change, founder of the climate leadership council under president bush too recipient of countless medals awards honors honorary degrees from universities around the world and an accomplished author but the one thing grandpa wasn't was a 21st century college graduate with a background in science engineering and biotechnology that wasn't afraid to speak up when something wasn't okay when real harm could potentially come to countless unsuspecting patients. And all I can say is that I hope grandpa was proud. A few days had gone by before Tyler received a reply to his email to Elizabeth. And he had expected to hear back from her, but he didn't. The reply that he had got had come from Sonny. And it was not a fun read. And what kind of sounds out of character for Sonny is that it was a response longer than Tyler's original email. So even though I don't know this to be a fact, I would be willing to bet that Sonny had somebody else write it. Possibly Daniel Young, since he is the brains of this whole scheme. And we already know that Sonny is as dumb as a bag of mini labs and is incapable of refuting things with any kind of real-life facts. The email went down the list of things that Tyler had written and had countered every single one of them in an effort to dispose of what Tyler had said as having come from someone who has no clue what he's talking about. Sonny disparaged Tyler at every turn and basically told him that he lacked any real concept of what it means to be a scientist, how to interpret data, and he had no ability to work in a laboratory. Carrie Rood described it very well in his book. The overall message was that Tyler was too junior and green to understand what he was talking about. Sonny's tone throughout was dripping with venom, but he reserved his sharpest words for the questions that Tyler had raised about the proficiency testing. That reckless comment and accusation about the integrity of our company, its leadership and its core team members based on absolute ignorance is so insulting to me that had any other person made these statements, we would have held them accountable in the strongest way. The only reason I have taken so much time away from my work to address this personally is because you are Mr. Schultz's grandson. I have now spent an extraordinary amount of time postponing critical business matters to investigate your assertions, the only email on this topic I want to see from you going forward is an apology that I'll pass on to other people, including Daniel here. I can imagine that that must have stung when Tyler read it. We can only hope that perhaps in the short time that Tyler spent working there at Theranos, that he had enough insight just as all of us here at California Dreaming did right from Jump Street, that Sonny Balwani is an insignificant, feeble-minded imbecile that works hard at hiding his asininity behind money and a perception of being in power, which is built on intimidation, fear, and a small army of paid stooges. We had Sonny nailed from the moment I said poofy white shirts, chest hairs, acid washed dad jeans, gold chains, and blue Gucci's, am I right? If Tyler didn't know, well, now he knows. Sonny and Elizabeth believed that Theranos was unstoppable. And to an extent, they were because they made sure that everybody knew. If you cross them, they would get slapped into the next century with lawsuits. That's a big deterrent. And it was for Tyler, too. Until it wasn't. Because... What it all boils down to is when you're right, you're right. It was time to quit. Tyler loved and respected his grandpa, but the old man simply wasn't hearing his grandson. Tyler went ahead and responded to Sonny's email, giving him his notice of resignation, but also agreed to leave anytime Sonny wanted him to. A couple hours later, Tyler was called into human resources and he was told to leave Theranos immediately. He was made to sign more non and non-disparagement agreements, even though he had signed those when he was hired. He was told that he would be shown out of the building by security, but Tyler didn't bother waiting around, so he showed himself the door. But the moment that he made it out the front door and into the parking lot, Tyler's mom called his phone and when he answered, she was panicking. And she begged him to not do whatever it was he was about to do. And he was like, mom, it's too late. I already quit. I'm out. But according to Bad Blood, Tyler's mom said, that's not what I mean. I just got off the phone with your grandfather. He said Elizabeth called him and told him that if you insist on carrying out your vendetta against her, you will lose. And Tyler was like, what in the holy baloney is this woman talking about? Is Elizabeth actually threatening him indirectly via his parents and his grandpa? Did she really call his grandpa up and issue a warning? Keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing and you will lose. Is this actually happening? She's attempting to turn his own father against him? Really? And will she succeed in doing so? Tyler's mind was spinning. He went immediately over to the Hoover Institution, where his grandpa was a fellow. And for those who don't know, the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution and Peace is located in Stanford, California, on the Stanford University campus. And it's a conservative American public policy and research institution that promotes personal and economic liberty, free enterprise and limited government. It was founded in 1919 by Stanford graduate Herbert Hoover before he became the 31st President of the United States. Its library and archives include items related to President Hoover, World War I, World War II, in addition to several other historical significant events. And it's a place where fellows include those who have held significant high-level government positions like Secretary George Schultz. So Tyler made his way over to his grandpa's office. He was angry, but he kind of just became a little bit shaken up by the whole thing by the time he got there to sat down and talk to Grandpa. He managed to calm down a little bit as he told Grandpa what happened with Elizabeth. Tyler had a copy of his email that he had sent to Elizabeth a few days earlier, along with Sonny's scathing response. And Grandpa wanted copies, so he asked his executive assistant to take some. And afterwards, Secretary Schultz took those away in his safe. Tyler wasn't sure if Grandpa was really grasping the gravity of what he was telling him because there was nothing about his comportment that betrayed what he may have been thinking. All of the years that Secretary Schultz had spent as a statesman having to confront the most serious of threats to the United States, including the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Schultz was a man who listened, observed, and absorbed, but said nothing. The two of them decided to talk again later that evening at Grandpa's house before Tyler left his office. His grandpa offered this quote, Many of us have already heard, and you may Hear it again if you're watching the Hulu series. He told Tyler, They're trying to convince me that you're stupid. They can't convince me that you're stupid. They can, however, convince me that you're wrong. And in this case, I do believe that you are wrong. Back in the lab, the Immunosa team just gave the go-ahead to begin running the hepatitis C test. Yep, actual real clinical lab tests to be run on actual real patients that visit the Walgreens Theranos Wellness Centers. This really threw Erica Chung for a loop. She was still working in the lab and she knew Tyler was gone. They were friends, so she knew the whole story. The four tests that they had been running on the Edison were on varying levels, serious in their own way, but none of them involved testing for infectious transmittable diseases. Hepatitis C was a new, different, and bigger kind of urgency. What if they tested someone who was infected with hepatitis C, but the Edison spit out results indicating that the patient was negative? So they're just going to go about their life thinking that they're free and clear, not getting any treatment, not taking care of their medical needs, and completely unaware that they could be passing it on to someone else. For Erica, for any normal human being, the thought of that should be terrifying. And anyone at Theranos who could not understand the enormity of that is either insane or inhumane. All of Erica's worst fears came to fruition When in one particular day, she had received a blood sample that was to be tested for hepatitis C. She would not run this test on the Edison. She flat out refused to do so. The co-lab director, Mark Pandori, sat down to talk to Erica about her concerns. And she felt comfortable enough to discuss this with him because they had developed a solid, working, trusting relationship. In fact, Erica had a breakdown when she spoke about her fears when it came to testing for infectious diseases. And Mark was also one who strived to do what he felt was right, so he understood. And he agreed. There were several problems with the hepatitis C testing. First off, the reagents that they had on hand in the laboratory that needed to be mixed with the blood sample to be tested specifically for hep C were all expired. Another problem is that none of the Edison machines had gone through the recalibration process in quite a long time. So she didn't feel like they were reliable enough to run any test, much less the hepatitis C. Now, they did have a plan B in place for these situations that arose when they were running hepatitis C tests, and they were using these kits that you can buy online. And I looked it up, and it's called an OraQuick HCV kit, and it cost between five and $600. I went to the Theranos menu that we talked about a few episodes back on the Wayback Machine and checked up on the Theranos price for the Hep C test, and it's $9.71. So, get this, dreamers. They were collecting patient blood samples remotely in Walgreens. That sample was then being couriered over to the Theranos lab, and remember, the testing was supposed to be done on site in the Walgreens with results coming back before you're finished shopping, right? That's not happening, obviously. So then the lab technicians at the Theranos headquarters were running the $9.71 hepatitis C test on a five dollars or $600 do-it-yourself-at-home hepatitis C kit. And I'm no financial wizard, but even I can tell that this is going to drive theranos into financial ruin at the rate that they were going i don't know how in the world elizabeth and Sonny thought that they could keep this up well even though mr gucci's and gold chains likes to spend ridiculous amounts of money to look so stupid we know that he is a penny pinching little scrooge when it comes to some of the expenditures that theranos had to make And it sounds like one of those expenditures that he didn't like was the Aura Quick Hep C Testing Kit. The plan to run the Hepatitis C test using the kits was getting the lab by for a while and they were able to come up with accurate results. And technicians like Erica were comfortable with it because they trusted them. But they had run out of the kits. So when the lab put in an order for a new shipment of them. Sonny flew into a tizzy of a hizzy fit once again, and he blocked the order. He knew it was ridiculous to spend hundreds of dollars to complete a test that they were charging less than $10 to run. He demanded that the hep test be run on the Edison, period. Inaccurate or false results be damned. He didn't give a shit. To him, these patients were nothing more Than anonymous tubes of blood. So it was about the exact same time that Tyler was being made aware of Elizabeth's threat that she had issued to his grandpa, that was then relayed to his mom and eventually to Tyler. At about the same time, Erica had been asked to come into Sonny's office. From the time that Sonny received Tyler's reply to his email that he was quitting, Sonny started meticulously going through all of Tyler's email correspondences, and he discovered that the information that Tyler received about the proficiency testing had actually been sent to him by Erica. At first, Sonny tried to speak to Erica like a normal person. But, you know, that's not really in Sonny's wheelhouse. He soon began laying into her, putting her down, belittling her, pretty much the same way that he had done to Tyler. And he basically told her that she was too young to know anything about anything. And when he was finished, he demanded that she to tell him immediately if she wanted to continue working there or not. When she got off work later that afternoon, she went straight over to see Tyler. He told her about his plans to go have dinner at his grandpa's to talk about what had happened. And he thought maybe if she came with him, that perhaps grandpa would be more convinced that there was Something very wrong going on there and it wasn't just him that that was the problem, that there were other employees that saw it too. Erica agreed to go along to try and open up Grandpa's eyes about what was really going on at Theranos. But once they got there for dinner, it didn't take long for Tyler and Erica to see that Grandpa was very, very solidly in Elizabeth's corner on this. In fact, He had become even more resolute in his faith in Theranos in the hours since Tyler had spoken to him earlier in that same day at his office at the Hoover Institute. Tyler's step-grandmother, her name was Charlotte, she was listening, and she was taking in what Tyler and Erica were telling them. In fact, she expressed a tremendous amount of surprise and concern when the two of them went down the list of misgivings that they had about the way Theranos was running its laboratory. Grandpa, on the other hand, was completely unaffected and he remained in total solidarity. And it wasn't so much that he was standing behind Theranos, but he was standing behind Elizabeth. She had gotten to him. In fact, it was beginning to dawn on Tyler that his grandpa might just have a closer relationship with her than him. But he understood how much passion his grandpa had for anything that would make this world a better, healthier, and safer place. And it was his attachment to what Elizabeth sold Theranos to be that he was hanging on to. That this company was the innovator of technology that would enable us to never have to say goodbye to our loved ones too soon. George Schultz was holding on to that promise fiercely. From there, Grandpa went on to share a couple of things that he was told that Erica and Tyler knew were flat-out blatant lies, and one of them had come from Elizabeth herself. First, Grandpa said that, There was one of the most renowned surgeons in the country that had told him that Theranos was a company that was going to revolutionize the field of medicine. And this doctor was BFFs with Mr. Henry Kissinger, who is a man that George Schultz admired and respected as one of the most brilliant men that he had ever known. The other thing that Grandpa told Tyler and Erica was that Elizabeth told him directly Theranos devices had been deployed in life flight helicopters and in emergency rooms and operating rooms. Yep, Elizabeth Holmes told George Schultz that lie and Grandpa believed her. Tyler and Erica were beside themselves as they sat there and tried to convince him that this was not possible. Theranos machines were barely functioning Within their own laboratories, there was no way that they were being used in medevacs and hospitals. Just impossible. And while Grandpa simply couldn't be convinced, he offered the two of them more sage advice. They can move forward. They have so much ahead of them. They're bright. They're brilliant. Just leave Theranos in the past. And that's exactly what Erica Chung decided to do. The next day she began writing her letter of resignation. It wasn't long and she gave it to her direct supervisor Mark Pandori, and he would be the one to give it to Elizabeth and Sonny. In the letter she said that she could not take part in running patient blood samples on the Edison and that Theranos did not have the same philosophies that she had when it came to the quality of care that is given to patients. Mark didn't give it to Sonny or Elizabeth, but instead he handed the paper back to Erica and told her that she should go as quietly as possible. The letter did make its way to human resources, and when Erica was called up to the office, her bag was searched and a copy of her resignation was discovered and confiscated. Erica was made to sign the NDAs again, and she was issued a stern warning. Do not write anything about Theranos anywhere on the internet or on social media. They will track it down and you will pay dearly. Okay, we're going to pause this saga here for right now. When we come back, we're going to refresh our memories a tiny bit about what went down with Dr. Richard Fwiz. We discussed him and the lawsuit that Elizabeth had filed against him a few episodes back. And when I covered that, I skipped ahead to when they settled the lawsuit. We're now arriving back to that time in the chronology. But at the end of the lawsuit, when it would all be finished, it triggered some national media attention that would see Elizabeth's company, vision, and her image clad in the legendary black turtleneck some nationwide attention taking her and theranos to a whole new level of fame and fortune so i'm looking forward to that because it all looks so good and pretty and shiny and fun from the outside but little does elizabeth or sunny for that matter know that the countdown to the takedown has begun i want to thank you as always for subscribing listening to and supporting this show don't forget to join the Facebook discussion group where we've shared way too many pictures of those blue suede Gucci's and I never intend to let Belwani live that down and I think all of you are good with that just like I am. Follow this show on Instagram and Twitter and if you have a dollar or two to spare, consider joining Patreon. We are in the middle of another series on one of the worst moms we've ever covered, Teresa Cross Noor. And if you think you know this story, I'm pretty sure there is so much more to know because we are diving deep into it on Patreon. Thank you again for all of the love and all of the support. Oh, and I have just purchased and received a whole bunch of Patreon perks. And I began writing and addressing thank you cards earlier this week. Just so you know, I send every patron a handwritten card. So it takes time but they are coming with some small tokens of my gratitude. I also want to thank you so much for being patient with the Theranos episodes. They are taking me a little bit longer to write and research because I have to put all this biotech medical stuff into my own words. Sometimes it does get overwhelming and I will use direct quotes instead, but they are turning out to be more time consuming than the regular episodes that don't involve so many complicated layers and concepts. But anyway, I'm going to stop with the excuses and I am going to jump right into the next installment as soon as possible for all of you. I cannot thank you enough for everything that you've done for this show. I love you all and until next time, sweet dreams.